Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, your holiday cruise to the emerald beauty of a Puerto Rican rainforest. Now ready for departure. Secure ship for sea. Make all preparations for getting underway. Sir. Horizons One is now departing. Our final destination today, the 21st century. That will make me happy, little orange boy. Now then, hang on to them hats and glasses, because this here's the wildest ride in the wilderness. W, w Radio. You're in Hello, everybody, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 309 for the week of January 20th, 2013. I'm here to help you have the best possible Disney vacation experience and bring you a little bit of Disney magic wherever you are with this podcast and my videos, blog, live broadcast. In-person events, my Walt Disney World trivia books, CDs, and more. You can find it all over at www.radio.com. This week, I invite you to join me aboard my Walt Disney World Wayback Machine as we turn back the dial to 1993. We'll look at what the parks and resorts looked like that year and the events leading up to that time. From the birth of Michael Eisner's Disney Decade, we'll look at the attractions, shows, and restaurants that have come and gone as well as beyond the parks, into the Walt Disney World Village, Pleasure Island, and beyond. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week and pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. I'll then have some announcements at the end of the show, including details about our six-year anniversary show, our WDW Radio On The Road events, including our group trip to Disney's Alana Resort in Hawaii, and our cruise on the Disney Fantasy. So sit back... Relax and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. In addition to helping you plan for your upcoming Walt Disney World vacation and bringing the experience of Walt Disney World directly to you through the show and the videos and the live broadcasts. I also love looking back at Walt Disney World's history through what I like to call our Walt Disney World Wayback Machine. Because I think it not only lets you remember some of your earlier visits, maybe when you were a child, but also lets you appreciate how Walt Disney World has changed and grown over the years. So oftentimes on the show, we'll focus on a land, attraction, show, or yes, maybe even a restaurant, But sometimes I like just setting the dial on the Wayback Machine to a specific year and exploring the entire property to see a snapshot in time. And so this week, we're going to travel back in time to Walt Disney World in 1993. And just as he does on many Wayback Machine segments, I'm joined this week once again by Ryan Wilson from the Main Street Gazette. How's it going? Good, good. It's good to have you uh, back again. And Ryan, I gotta tell you, When I was thinking of going back in time and trying to pick when and where to visit, you know, we've set the Wayback Machine in the past to 1973 and 1986 on past shows, sort of right after the opening of Walt Disney World and then a few years after the opening of Epcot Center. And so I figured we've done the 70s, we've done the 80s. 
I thought we should do something in the 90s, but I said to myself, well, that's too close, right? It's not far enough back in time. And then I realized that 1993 was 20 years ago. I know. I remember when we were emailing back and forth about this, and you said it was 20 years ago. I'm like, no, no, it wasn't 20 years ago. And I'm like, it was 20 years ago. And it, this is one of those dates that seems so far back, but yet so close to us. Right. When I say 1993, it seems like just a couple of years ago, right? And then I was like, wow, it really is 20 years, you know, and I'm thinking how time flies and how much has changed, not just in Walt Disney World. So I tried, I want to sort of put it all in context because this is what made me feel really, really old, right? So let's sort of talk, look at the world outside of the Disney world. Bill Clinton is president. Ty launches Beanie Babies in 1993. <laughs> the Pentium processor is introduced by Intel, the first, and you're able to run that on your brand spanking new Windows NT 3.1 machine. If you're a tech geek like I am, you feel the years starting to add on. Yeah. 1993, Ryan, the World Wide Web was born over back at CERN, right? Popular films, Jurassic Park, Mrs. Doubtfire, The Fugitive, Indecent Proposal, Schindler's List, and of course the ever-popular Robin Hood Men in Tights because you always have to have a Mel Brooks film to, to, to help uh, figure exactly where we are. Popular musicians are Janet Jackson, Snoop Doggy Dog, UB40, and Nirvana. I'm sure you remember cuddling up on the couch watching Ally McBeal, The X-Files, the truth is out there, Friends, Will and Grace, and Oh How We Miss You, Will Smith, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. You too have come a long way, baby. Back in 1993, <coughs> excuse me, let's bring it back to Disney. There's a brand new NHL expansion team named the Mighty Ducks, owned by the Walt Disney Company. Miss America is, you're going to know this name, the lovely Miss Leanza Cornette from Florida. And what is her Disney connection? She, she was an ambassador, wasn't she? No, she was Ariel in Voyage of the Ariel. Mermaid. That's right. Okay. I knew I knew somewhere in there. Disney movies, 1993, Hocus Pocus, Cool Runnings, The Adventures of Huck Finn, Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey, and Nightmare Before Christmas. Same starting to feel, we're starting to feel the age here, I'm aren't feeling we? it, like, right? You're starting to feel exactly how old you are. I think for me, things like Jurassic Park, uh, X-Files, and Windows NT 3.1, that's what made me all of a sudden feel... Uh, that and then when I meet uh, uh, friends or cast members and I'm like, oh, yeah, 1993, that was the year I was born. Oh, yeah, we have that now, don't we? <laughs> we have that. Yeah, every year, every year I get these new kids and they have these years, you know, it's like to 2000s now. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Like, what are you doing to me? Yeah, um, I, tell, uh, I tell stories all the time. I, was once, I took my kids to Art of Animation for lunch and at the Ink and Paint Shop, as uh, well as many other places throughout the property, they had a little trivia board. And uh, I brought my kids over and the trivia question talked about an animated film from 1950. My daughter, because I raised her right, knew that it was Alice in Wonderland and the cast member comes out from behind the counter we start chatting and i'm talking about yeah I, you know i love showing my kids the classic disney movies we love watching the classic film she goes oh god yeah i love the classics too you know little mermaid beauty and the beauty beast. the beast <laughs> Lion King. yeah yeah that yeah. that makes us feel real old real fast um i know in looking at all of this i one of the things that caught me by surprise and i did it was one of those oh i am this old now was seeing that this was the year that full house 
ran the house meets the mouse at Disney World. Yeah. And I was, and I can remember that episode like it was yesterday and I'm like, right, okay, 20 years ago. All right. <laughs> So let's sort of bring things back to Disney. And before we get specifically to Walt Disney World in 1993, I want to sort of help set the stage as to what's going on in the Disney World itself. Because in the uh, mid-80s, in in 1984, uh, a gentleman by the name of Michael Eisner is fired as the president of Paramount Pictures, and he's brought in to help revive the Walt Disney Company. And look, Ryan, I talk about this all the time in, in uh, my my feelings about Michael Eisner. You know, so much, so many people remember him for the way he left, right? It's easy to remember mm-hmm. the bad things, but, mm-hmm. you know, he was brought in to bring life back into this company, which he did, right? They were, Disney, look, Disney was not making movies worth watching, right? We talked about some of the movies. That, look, Cool Runnings and Homeward Bound were not breaking box office records, right? The theme park right. earnings were were failing and you know corporate raiders were getting ready to pounce on the magic kingdom they were going to sell off disneyland remember they were going to build yeah. all these condos around walt disney world yeah it was it was it was not it was probably one of the darker days that the disney company had seen in a long time um and so they had to bring in somebody with some fresh ideas and you're right it's really easy to remember how bad things could have you know how bad things did get towards the end of eisner's run or how you perceive them as as bad but there was so much in the beginning, you know, and that started the Disney decade that he, you know, perpetuated that were good and that did turn things around for the company. Right. And I tell people all the time that sometimes I hear are, are critical or making jokes about Michael Eisner. You know, as part of that Disney decade, he endeavored to build new parks, expand the existing parks, new film, new investment in new media. So Michael Eisner, responsible for things like Disneyland Paris, it was Euro Disney back then. Disney MGM Studios, California Adventure Park, MGM Studios Paris. Uh, think about the movies, right? Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, the, the Aladdin, Lion King. That new renaissance of Disney films, Michael Eisner sa- not only saved this company, but so much of what we enjoy and appreciate at Walt Disney World now is directly due to bringing him and certainly Frank Wells in. Oh, without a doubt. And you consider when he came in, there were two parks, you know, a couple, a handful of resorts, and it just blossomed to the point where I mean, he doubled the amount of you know park gates that they had in Florida. So it, there's so much to be thankful for there. And whether you you know you love or hate the man, you have to respect what he was able to do in his time there. Right. So before we talk specifically about 1993, let's look at some of the things that happened in Walt Disney World. Because of Michael Eisner, because of this this uh, idea of expanding the parks, right? He said he was going to add a fourth park during the 90s, which he did. They were going to expand Epcot Center. Of course, he announced Soviet Union was coming. We know that didn't happen. Uh, 16 new attractions for Disney MGM Studios, all right? So as part of this Disney decade, the studios and Typhoon Lagoon opens in 1989, You've got the Swan, the Dolphin opening, Yacht and Beach Club opening, Port Orleans, Old Key West, Dixie Landings, expansions to things like uh, Splash Mountain. Uh, Muppets mm-hmm. is now in there. Um, Pleasure Island and, and everything that was going on in downtown Disney and all these plans to build new resorts, a new water park. Um, you know, what all-star music, uh, what all, the all-star resorts uh, ended up being. So there's this huge expansion that goes on. Not only that, he also starts to bring the 
um, awareness of what's going on to Disney, and I know we love this too, back onto TV again, right? So they, mm-hmm. I remember they had the 20th anniversary celebration of Walt Disney World, a Dream is Alive a special on CBS, which I'm sure many of us would love to see some of those things come back again. Absolutely. You, you had the, the Christmas parade, which has always been there, but it becomes so popular. It actually gains an Emmy that year in 1993. Um, it, it's, it's an incredible expansion at a very rapid rate. You know, Epcot got its back, you know, because of Yacht and Beach Club, because Swan and Dolphin, they had trams and you were able to come in through the International Gateway for the first time. Uh, he found ways to keep guests on property and keep them entertained, whether it be a water park, the entertainment complex known as Pleasure Island, you know, down by the marketplace. Uh, he, he just found ways to reinvigorate and put new life into the property. And I think what he did, too, is a trend that carried on to his successor, Bob Iger and and what I believe is now going to be Bob Iger's legacy, which is acquiring and working with other incredibly popular family-friendly entertainment properties, right? So he helps to broker this deal with Henson Associates to use Muppet characters to create, uh, you know, films and stage shows and characters in Walt Disney World, right? Remember Days of Swine and Roses over at, uh, at, at Disney MGM Studios, Muppet Vision 3D, all those things came from Eisner working on that deal to bring in that other property. Yeah, and, and the studios was a prime example of this. You know, there were different television productions, uh, some from in-house, some that weren't from Disney. You had Star Wars that sh- showed up, and which became a long-lasting, you know, part of the company, you know, of that bond, which then became part of the company this past year. Um, he wanted, you know, Roger Rabbit had a bunch of characters that had nothing to do with the Disney canon. But that intermingled with those characters so well because of the world of tunes. Right, right. And look, the year before, you know, 1992, Splash Mountain uh, comes to Walt Disney World. We know, obviously, the story of that property and how it came to be out in Disneyland and Walt Disney World and just how incredibly popular that attraction still is, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. It's you know one of the three mountains in the kingdom. All right, so let's, let's hop into the Wayback Machine. We're going to set the dial for 1993, and I want to talk we'll sort of go park by park and we'll talk about some of the things that were there and came and went and sort of uh, take a virtual trip down memory lane. But before we even walk in the door, Ryan, let's again put it all in context because if we want to walk into the gate of any single park, it's going to cost us a whopping astronomical $35.90 for a one-day ticket. I think I spent more of that on a season of a television show (laughs) last night. Um, I spent more of that on lunch last week. That's probably true too. I'm sure I did actually last week. Um, yeah, it's it getting into the parks back then. You consider the cost as it is compared to today, and it, yeah, it really wasn't as the same. Yeah, a four day super pass, what it was called then, then was 124 dollars and sixty cents, and your annual pass. Right, if you wanted to come to the if you wanted to finally make that move and come to Florida all the time, it was going to cost you two hundred dollars and sixty cents. I remember we had the, those seasonal passes when I grew up in Florida and had your picture on the back and the logo on the front. I thought I was, you know, just the bee's knee. Like, I thought that was it. <laughs> so, all right, let's, let's walk into the parks. Let's start over in the Magic Kingdom and talk about some of the things that uh, were there and were changing. And I'm going to start right off with food because when I, I sometimes take people through the parks and we go over to um, – 
the Friar's Nook, one of my favorite little out-of-the-way snack locations in fantasy. I want to call it old fantasy land now. In fantasy <laughs> land, which, by the way, when it's open, had the best teriyaki chicken nuggets with wasabi peas and fresh and potato fries. chips. Yeah. Oh, my God, it's awesome. But it used to be – look, one thing I always love about that place is it was always themed towards Disney, different Disney animated films. And it was originally known, you know, in the um, – in the late 80s, early 90s, as Gurgi's Munchies and Crunchies, but in 1993, it actually closed and became Lumiere's Kitchen. Right, because because that classic Beauty and the Beast had come out, and uh, it, it was so popular. Um, kind of foreboding, because really right now, it's right across the way from where you have Beast Castle, but, oh, Gurgi, how many people out there actually even know what we're talking about when we say Gurgi? And I ask people all the time, who was Gurgi? I'll buy you a free... No, never. I could... I, yeah, that little little munchkin uh, creature from Black Cauldron. I love it. Yeah, again, we talked about how, look, you know, it was themed after a character from a film that not maybe everybody loved or saw and becomes Lumiere's Kitchen from the blockbuster that, that became Beauty and the Beast. So uh, let's move through the parks and talk about some of the other things that are closing and opening. Uh, in October, Mission to Mars closes after becoming mission to mars it's still flight to the moon the planet is just red now but i will tell you ryan that's one of the attractions that i totally bought into and for those of you that remember flight to the moon on the left hand side where stitch's great escape was uh it had a screen on the floor it had a screen on the ceiling and screens all around you it had the vibrating seats like sense around and it really gave you or me the you know five-year-old kid the feeling as though you were in a real rocket that was shaken and taking you off up to the moon. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah, I bought into this one wholeheartedly. Part of it was I think I wanted to go to the moon and I wanted to go to Mars. Um, but it, it was. It, you felt like you were in a rocket because they had this giant space that they filled in you know, with with a room full of guests. It wasn't like mission to uh, mission space where it's this very closed kind of cut off feeling. You felt like you were on a team going up and it was incredible and yeah, it closed in October of that year. They were getting ready for the for the new Tomorrowland, which is now the old Tomorrowland. Right. <laughs> um, but they were, you know, we were going to lose the spires. We we're going to get all this, you know, the future that never was and always would be kind of, you know, uh, Buck Rogers space explore, exploration. Um, and Mission to Mars would make way for the extraterrestrial alien encounter. Yeah, and again, and that's something that we have to one day talk about on a on a Wayback yeah. Machine segment and, and the story and the saga of what ended up becoming, what was that, um, when, what extraterrestrial alien encounter ended up being when it finally opened and what it was going to be before it was. <laughs> but let's stay in Tomorrowland really quickly. Um, in, the, uh, in the theater across the way was American Journeys, sort of that 360 degree circle vision film uh, kind of like a picture postcard of the United States. But what I remember from this one, Ryan, was you had the Statue of Liberty at the end and Dodger Stadium. and, and But right. I remember how it had Mount St. Helens because they were able to get a camera there like two days yes. after it erupted. And you have Mount St. Helens, which is kind of the time capsule for that, you know, for that time. But it was always an attraction I felt would go on even after they closed uh Tomorrowland and be someplace in Epcot or it just had that feel to it, that great you know edutainment kind of feel to it um, but in, but sadly when they shuttered it that was the end of it 
Yeah, so it's almost sort of that idea of what Soren is now, right? Sort of flying through right. the United States uh, as Soren is th through California, but, uh, you know, recognizable icons and locations and the fact that Circle Vision was still uh, a pretty amazing technology uh, and still is it, look, even when you go over to China, it's still pretty impressive as well. Um, quickly staying in Tomorrowland, they had at the end of Space Mountain, it was known as Rika 1, Dream of a New World. Right? And you might be saying, well, I don't remember that attraction. Well, because what that was, was simply that moving sidewalk that takes you back out into what's now the Tomorrowland Power and Light Company. That moving sidewalk that showed you different types of electronic media in the home. And then on that final sort of slope upwards, you're able to look into those cameras against the green screen. The interesting thing about this back in, at, in again, 1993, was each of those camera systems cost seventy to eighty thousand dollars each. each and now we can do it with the webcam now you can do it with your phone right you can, yeah, you can do exactly. better with your phone so it was kind of like that the house of the future but but space mountains version and they were they were they were giving you all these new technologies which kind of played off of carousel of progress which would reopen in november of 1993 with its new story that they had updated the the today scene, um, which is still there 20 years later. Um, they but well, yeah, they bring to... back Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, right? Yes, yes. And, and I will tell you, as somebody at the time, remember, as a kid, I grew up with Now Is the, the Time. So mm -hmm. I'm, I will admit now that for a little while I was upset. I'm like, wow, why'd they go back to this old song? I like, you know, why'd they switch a the song? I like the one that I grew up with, which was Now Is the Time. Right, and this is also one of the arguments I know we both had with people where they say, you know, they changed the song, they should have never changed the song. But it's because people grew up with Now is the Time, they forget that it was originally Big, Be Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow. Right, and if you want to sort of bring it back to, again, that discussion we have about Walt Disney's signature and imprint being all over this, it should be Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow. Yes, because that is, you know, if you're going to call it Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress, then that's the song that you put there because you have, you know, all these great videos of him singing with the Sherman Brothers and the song's creation, and yeah, that's what you want to put in there. So quickly circling back into Fantasyland, we talked about Gurgies, Munchies, and Crunchies. Dumbo goes through a slight remodel as well, too. In the Fantasyland Theater, which is currently where Mickey's Magic in, for the last time, Magic Journeys is performed. Now, a lot of people don't realize, Ryan, that Magic Journeys, that 3D show that premiered over in Epcot Center, actually spent some time over in the Magic Kingdom as well. Right, it was... it. it Spent just a few years um, right before I believe the Lion King movie moved into the into the space, um, but yeah, it, it did have its time in Epcot and in the Magic Kingdom. But think too, while that may have closed, you still had the Skyway, Mr. Toad, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, and now we have to add Snow White to that list of extinct attractions now. Right. So this is <laughs> this is back at the time where you know nowadays you have Peter Pan and you have It's a Small World. And that's and that's what we have left of Fantasyland yeah. from, and the carousel, even from back yeah. in 1993, and the carousel yeah. from 1993. So we also lost um, since then. Mike Fink was still running his keel boats along the rivers of America, but remember, in 1993, we didn't have Birthday Land, we didn't have Toontown, we didn't have Storybook Circus. We had Mickey Starland. So for again to give you a sense of time and place, and the fact that many of these properties were actually after my time. Goof Troop, Tailspin, Darkwing Duck, Mickey's Magical TV World, the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse uh, Funland Tent, 
the the mouse gamays, all those things existed in Mickey Starland. Right, and you had Minnie Moo coming in, and uh, which is the cow with the Mickey imprint on the side. Uh, this was, you know, and I know we talked about it before, but yeah, this was like the the home for uh, the Disney afternoon shows that that just you know my, you know a generation grew up with loving. And again, because of this renewed sense of nostalgia in the parks at Walt Disney World, we're seeing some of those things come back again on T-shirts and other properties on on merchandise again because. Again, 20 years, 20 years later, that is nostalgic for a lot of the people that grew up with this as kids. You're absolutely right. And then you know, some of the pieces that weren't necessarily popular at the time that are coming back now. And I know like when we get to the studios, we'll talk a little bit about Nightmare Before Christmas. But it's that whole what's, what's you know, old is new again. Exactly. Exactly. Um, let's move over to Epcot Center. Uh, again, there was not a lot of major expansion going on here at this time. But I remember a couple of things that were relatively new. So Sunshine Seasons Food Fair opens in 1993. The Garden Grill opens again. Those were there before under different names, under different themes for a while. But I remember, too, this is when the backstage magic show back at Epcot Computer Control closed. Because, again, as a kid growing up, being a total nerd, the technology and this, this demonstration of futuristic computer technology was one of the things that appealed to me so much about Epcot Center. Right. This was this, 1993 in Epcot was this year of almost um, almost of transitions because you have these new things opening in the land. You have interventions, you know, just getting ready to come onto the scene. Uh, Kitchen Cabaret is going to change in 94 over to Food Rocks. So there's all this stuff, you know, kind of in the middle of the transition uh, in Epcot Center. One of the areas, though, in Epcot that didn't change often, but some of the subtle, some of the subtle changes in there were in Communicore, right? And so we love talking about things like the Great American Census Quiz, Smart One, the little purple interactive robot, the uh, energy exchange. You were still able in 1993 to vote on the person of the century, although no one ever won. It was the Electronic Forum. Illuminations was still there. But this also marked the first year for something that is still going very, very strong and even getting bigger in 2013. Absolutely. So 1993 was the first year that we had the Flower and Garden Festival, um, which at this time was you know, Epcot's foray into thing. well, is there a market for this? And you know, it wasn't as long as it is now. Now we have it for almost two and a half months. Um, and the, the flowers weren't as ornate and the topiaries weren't as you know, a popular thing as we, as we have now. In that park, but it was the first year that we would see these flowering gardens, so it was uh, kind of a big deal. And I think you, you talked about it being a sense of transition and change. Epcot was becoming more entertainment than edutainment, right? They were bringing more of an entertainment, not necessarily a educational, technical component to it, with something like Flower and Garden that I think had a, a much broader appeal. Absolutely, because when you have that, that kind of, you know, these blooms bursting with color, you have, you'll, you'll gain the kids' interest, you'll hold their interest for a little while, and the parents can take home some of this stuff and, and build their own gardens and build up their own gardens. And, uh, you know, it, it was one of those things where when you're losing things like the education center, you know, that you want to keep this kind of going. Well, in terms of parks that were really starting to grow and expand exponentially, Again, the Michael Eisner created Disney's Hollywood Studios was 
still relatively new, right? Just a few years old, but there was already major expansion going on and being planned. Groundbreaking began for the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, and we have to talk about that one day and the many different uh, themes and stories, speaking of Mel Brooks, that went uh, into the creation of Tower of Terror. Beauty and the Beast, for a while, was being shown on the back in the backlot theater temporarily while they were building a whole new stage over on Sunset Boulevard, that whole new section of expansion which had yet to open. Right, the maps from this era, this day and age are really kind of cool because you'll see, you know, this Tower of Terror way down the end of the street with these, you know, little cartoon uh, dump trucks and cranes that are that are digging on this brown splotch of land, which is what's going to become Sunset Boulevard. Um, yeah, and it was it was this was going to be the big new land. There's going to be a lot of new things going on. You have Beauty and the Beast, which has moved from its original theater. Which where you saw Dick Tracy and then Diamond Double Cross and all these things, and it had to have a temporary home until they got the new, bigger stadium for them. Right, and this was really when the Disney MGM Studios was sort of sticking to its its original concept of being a real working studio. So while you still had this Hollywood that never was but always will be, look, we, we know about your view down Hollywood Boulevard, was of the great movie ride was not obstructed at that point by the sorcerer hat. You had sorcery in the sky, fireworks at night. But this is really when you still had things like the star today, where you had daily celebrity appearances. You really could go to the studios every day and not know who you might see, right? It's almost like Disney's limited time magic, but with celebrities. You never know <laughs> who you would see because they would always be doing something different and there'd be an opportunity to meet a celebrity in what was supposed to be sort of this backlot area. Absolutely. And the backlot area itself was much more, you know, accessible to guests at this point. Think about it. At the time, the backlot tour would start where the animation tour begins now, and you would get on the tram and go through, and then you'd have the walking tour. You had the studio showcase, which in 1993 had 65 of the stop motion puppets and about 20 miniature sets from the Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, it yeah, it was a much more, you know, you had Home Improvement come to uh, Superstar Television that year, which most people don't remember even existed any longer, which is where we have the American Idol experience now. Uh, there was a lot more of live television, live movies, the real Hollywood feel going on at the time. Right, that's exactly what it was. You had monster sound shows, Superstar Television. Uh, you could, the, I remember the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles being out on, uh, on New York Street, uh, which is now Streets for America. But it really was that sense of, you were not only learning about television and uh, movie making, but you were able to be a real interactive part of it. That was sort of the, one of the big thrusts, was was really sort of not just becoming a passive experience. It was more of an active experience where you were going to be part of the filmmaking process. You could be an actor. You could do some of the Foley sound effects. And in the monster sound, you have the wooden blocks for making the, the foot noises and the door that you could creak. And then they tweak the film just enough to, to change it. But it was your sound effects. You know, over at Superstar Television, you were in, like I said, they just added. Uh, they, they, you had Golden Girls. You had uh, Gilligan's Island. You were, you were in these shows for, you know, even if just for a brief scene. Yeah, and I remember, you know, as you were going through some of the backstage tours and the magic of Disney animation, it was less about exhibits as opposed to seeing real people, real cast members working on their craft, whether it was an animator, a costume designer, a set designer, whatever it may be. Like, you really got a sense like they were literally 
peeling back the curtain and giving you a look, not just at something that was staged, but something that was really getting prepared for a film or a TV broadcast. Absolutely, and there was so much filming happening at the time, at the, you know, in the studios and around the resort. You know, I mentioned Full House earlier, but Blossom was there that year, uh, live when it was Regis and Kathy Lee, not Michael and Kelly. Uh, you had Talk Soup there that year, Siskel and Ebert, Wheel of Fortune and Star Search both made it, both came down. So there was a lot of real, real filming, real television going on. Dinosaurs live, Muppets on location. <laughs> exactly. So again, you know, when you're talking about things like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Dinosaurs and, and Muppets Live, it gives you a sense of just how long ago uh, this really was. Obviously, in 1993, there was no fourth park, right? We sort of just kind of think about Animal Kingdom as, as it always being there. So really, where did you go elsewhere for a, a sort of excitement afterwards? You headed down to the Walt Disney World Village, where it had exciting destinations like the Great Southern Country Craft Store and Lily Langtree's Photo Studios and the You and Me Kids Store, right from the old from the Disney Channel. Yeah, and but it, and there were you know the, the Rebus Brothers were still there. Uh, you had so much going on for shopping there, but the real draw to get in that area was the nighttime of Pleasure Island. Yeah, absolutely, because that's when Pleasure Island. You know, now we talk about that section uh, kind of to figure out what it wants to be back in 1993 it knew exactly what it wanted to be because it was new year's eve every night there was mannequins neon armadillo the adventurers club rest in peace comedy <laughs> warehouse almost rest in peace we still see you during the holidays the x i still never know exactly how to pronounce the xfr rock and roll beach club cage uh, and the west end stage Right, and and this and this year they really took it seriously. They had uh, big name comedians that were coming in for for a, a month apiece at Pleasure Island. So you had names like, well, the name that everyone really liked, you know, Gilbert Godfrey and uh, a bunch of others. Um, th they really wanted to bring people in, and they wanted to give them a reason to stay. Yeah, and this was, you know, definitely meant to be. Disney's answer to things that were going on in downtown Orlando, right? Church Street Station, uh, um, Universal Studios, a place for adults to go and have mm -hmm. very adult-oriented activities, right? There was great shopping there. I, I remember being able to walk through Pleasure Island during the day because you had really cool stores. Remember Avigators? Uh, there was right. Jessica's of Hollywood, uh, the Yester Ears Disneyana shop. The I remember the Propeller Heads Arcade. I was a I was a, a child of the arcade generation. Uh, <laughs> there were really cool Disney themed, well themed, different. You know, every store was different, right? And but it was a, a sort of a Disney themed property. And I can even remember the AMC Theater there that opened up. It had these huge, you know, giant glass windows. It looked like no theater I had ever seen in my life. And I just I was in awe there, and they had you know, up until it became really a nighttime thing. They did have you know, little dance parties going on for all, you know the whole family. They had uh, trivia going on, so th they made it a family environment up until the uh, the you know the hour. Where they're like, all right, and the kids, it's time to go back to the resort. Right, right, and then and then I sort of got away from that for a while because then it like anybody could go through Pleasure Island, and it was odd sort of seeing kids mm -hmm. sometimes in the Adventurers Club, um, you know. Quality parenting, bringing your four-year-old at, at a midnight <laughs> showing over at the Adventures Club. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's sort of when the change started to happen. Um, and we'll see what the future is going to hold for this section. As it, And I think maybe Splitsville is 
hopefully a good barometer of being able to strike that balance once again of family entertainment either during certain times or in certain areas and then adult you know 18 and up or 21 and up in other sections as well absolutely i think i know we you know i was just down last week and uh my wife and i visited splitsville and we talked about pleasure island we walked through and trying to get a gauge on where this is going what this is going to do you know they they can't leave they're not going to leave it like the, the way it is forever and i think i think you're right i think splitsville might be just the kind of thing that that can bring pleasure island back and hopefully we'll tie it all together with some you know clever story you know, and I, I did like the idea, and we still see little hints of that along the promenade. I like the idea of New Year's Eve every night. I like the West End stage. I like the fact that there was live entertainment going on without having to go through the sort of the, the physical portal of going into a, a club or whatever it may be. You could just sort of browse through Pleasure Island and get entertainment out on the promenade, whether you're snacking or walking or drinking, whatever it may be. Um, and I think if they could balance that with entertainment that is uh, family-friendly, too, uh, along the way, I, I think mm-hmm. that might be um, a good path. Absolutely. I know You know, here in Asheville, we have a lot of uh, you know street performers and and things that happen, and it really does kind of add to the atmosphere. And so that that's you know that's a way to make families feel more at ease, especially you know some of the music they have down there even right now is extraordinary. Um, you know, put a little put you know somebody out there telling jokes. We know fireworks every night works. It works for Pleasure Island. It works in Epcot. It works in the Magic Kingdom. It works at Disney uh, Hollywood Studios. So it it's there. It's just putting all the pieces together finally. So was there a place in Pleasure Island, a, a club or a restaurant or one of those places from 1993 or some other time that you used to frequent uh, or wish would come back? And I'm going to take Adventurers Club out because it's the easiest. I knew that was, I knew that was leaving. <laughs> um, no, for me it was uh, – I can remember you know, my heyday with it. I can remember it as a child, but my heyday was you know, in my early 20s was the Comedy Warehouse. And I would take you know, a bunch of friends and I would come over when I lived in Tampa – and we would drive over just, you know, we, we'd go dance a little, but it was to see the performance, to see the, the, the improv acting and, uh, you know, to see not only how smart they are to be able to come up with this stuff, but how witty they were, how funny they were. So I, I would love to see Comedy Warehouse come back in, you know, in a year-round capacity. I know I, I am going to get grief for this, but I will tell you that one of my favorite haunts was Mannequins. Uh, I was. I, I, I knew you. Look, I knew that was your answer too. Listen, where else could I wear my parachute pants and my hypercolor shirt and my thriller jacket, but going to mannequins? Uh, I would usually go alone and leave alone. But I, I was totally just that with the thriller jacket and the parachute pants. You were probably going home alone too. Yeah. But I loved the idea of you know at the time it had very very high tech effects in there, and they had the rotating dance floor. I mean, it was a cool place to hang out. There was a sense of almost uh, this this New York vibe because you had to enter in through the elevator, right? The only way to get in was by taking the elevator upstairs. There was a very sort of cool, hip vibe to it, which I did not actually feel, but I think other people who were there were cool and hip. I was just there more as a spectator. Uh, I did also like Comedy Warehouse as well, too. Beach Club was cool. I liked it better than... Uh, when it was a roller skating rink, because drinking and roller skating, not a good combination. Um, how that got past the lawyers, I have no idea. But I, I really used to like Pleasure Island and walking around the Walters World Village a lot um, as a kid and growing up. 
Absolutely. I mean, there's so many great sight lines there. You know, you have the waterfront where you have the what's Fulton's Crab Shack now, but was the Empress Lily, and you the marketplace always had this kind of arts and craft kind of kitschy feel to it. That was that was so great, but homey at the same time. And Pleasure Island was just neon and extraordinarily shaped buildings. Yeah, I can remember just looking around and just being like. This is incredible. Like, what is this? Why is you know why does this look this way? But loving it. The big Jessica sign, right? We all remember the big Jessica Rabbit sign with her. Oh, with her leg Jessica, yeah, we all remember Jessica Rabbit sign. <laughs> all right, so I want to give you a couple of other fun facts that I found about 1993. So first is a question for you: How much do you think a room at the Contemporary Resort Hotel was in 1993? Oh, let's see. I looked this up in the 80s at one point. Um, it would have been. Let's see. Now it's mm-hmm. – we'll say about 120. See, this actually surprised me. It was actually from 190 up to 1430 for a suite. So, I mean, it was still – It was still – yeah. It was still pretty – I remember it's $190 in 1993 money, right? Right. So that was still was a lot of money back then. I mean, the, that the, was still quite a bit. Yeah, even though you had, you know, Grand Floridian stuff, Contemporary was still sort of like – the place to stay, I think. That was still, you know, kind of the flagship resort. Yeah. To that point, I spent many, many hours, equally as many quarters, uh, in the Fiesta Fun Center. Right? Oh, who did first, it? Right. The first, so for those of you who don't remember, the, imagine the entire first floor of the Contemporary where check-in is now and the wave is now being a giant arcade uh, you know, game center. There was a movie theater and a snack bar in there, like, and it was all orange. It was just orange and red. Orange. <laughs> it was so orange. But it was still there. I mean, even in the uh, in the early nineties, it, it had changed obviously, and it and it was updated. Right. And I remember the uh, the expanded snack area that they had put in there as well. But that was where, as a kid growing up, we would stay at the Contemporary, and my parents, because they knew it was safe, would let me just go downstairs and spend countless hours in the Fiesta Fun Center. Yeah, I can remember, you know, we stayed at Fort Wilderness so much when I was a child that we would take a, you know, the motor launch over and I would just spend, you know, they'd be like, all right, have fun. And they would sit and relax, you know, on the beach or wherever. And my sister and I were lost in the mass of arcade games and the shooting galleries. And yeah, it was incredible. And that's, you know, the it, staying at the Contemporary, they had this Fiesta Fun Center for the kids. They still had the Outer Rim Lounge and things like that. But they also had an area really for adults and for they really again that that high-end elegant experience they used to have the top of the world not the one at bay lake tower but the original top of the world and they used to have a show called broadway at the top that actually closed in september of 93 but we talked about this in the past ryan that's really where they brought in you know not just uh, local acts, but real big, relatively speaking, headliners would come in there for these very elaborate, very elegant Broadway-style shows. Absolutely, and I can remember myself. I, you know, what the name that always sticks out with me is like you have people like Carol Channing coming out and doing and doing shows and their salute to Broadway. Um, it was it was a top tier experience for for the adults at the Contemporary. And, and this may have sort of to represent that change of making everything. Uh, more accessible and then changing that to what eventually is now going to be soon to be the updated California grill. All right. A couple of other fun facts that I found, obviously there was no blizzard beach yet. River country was still open. Many of us Mm -hmm. lament its loss, but here's a couple of the other things that you could do and see and get around Walt Disney world. If you wanted to find out the time and the weather 
They actually had a phone number. You could call 976-1611 and for 50 cents, you didn't have to actually look at your watch or out the window. They would tell you the time and the weather. Uh, Those old-fashioned sort of the olive drab post boxes on Main Street were no longer official U.S. post boxes. They actually used to be, um, Mm -hmm. but they now had cast members who would go and pick up your mail for you. You could actually rent a pocket pager, right? You could rent a pocket pager from your hotel that would signal a phone call or a message, right? Because remember, 1993, (laughs) we still all, not everybody had their Zach Morris phone. The StarTac didn't come out till like a year or so later. So nobody really was carrying on the big bulky phones. But if you needed to get an important business call while you're away, you could rent a pocket pager and share that phone number. And look, we all know that it gets a little warm in Florida and uh, plants necessarily don't do well on the Florida heat. Believe it or not, if you bought a plant from the Disney Village Marketplace or if you brought your favorite plant from home, they had plants sitting (laughs) <laughs> I kid you not, Disney had a plant sitting service at the kennels for no charge. So you could be bring Fluffy with you and put him in the cage and bring your favorite fern and they would water it and talk to it and make sure your plant survived the floor. I kid you not, Disney World 1993. I have like this little shop of horrors image in my head right now. Um, Feed me. <laughs> Um, th- th- I did not know about the plant sitting. That's pretty – for free actually is what actually shocks me about that is that there was no cost associated with that. But yeah, we had you – know, Discovery Island was still open, You know, not on – not in Animal Kingdom because that wasn't open yet. But the actual island out in the middle of Bay Lake that you could go visit. Um, I don't recommend them visiting now um, <laughs> with all the birds and, and the patrols and all that good stuff. But yeah, the, it seemed so much more alive back you know, in 1993 for whatever reason. Yeah, and I think this was still to a time when, and it, it it still is now, but they were really also pushing all the different things you could do beyond the theme parks too, right? There were so many activities you can partake mm-hmm. in in Fort Wilderness, water sports, the golf courses. I mean, this really was a time when it was the it was a vacation kingdom of the world because it was more than just coming to the theme parks. There was so much more to see. From daytime to nighttime, family to high-end adult-oriented entertainment as well, too. Right. I mean, you have you know the Osprey Ridge and Eagle Pines open that year uh, to rave reviews. You know, the, one of the ten best uh, public access courses in the country. It got ranked by uh, Golf Magazine. Uh, they wanted you, to, you know, they wanted you to spend a week there, and they and they had dedicated a lot of time to finding ways to get you to stay on property and to spend all of your days there. Absolutely. So. You know, as we were talking through this, I was thinking about some of the different things that are no longer there from the parks and from downtown Disney. And so my question for you, Ryan Wilson, and you, the listener, is what do you miss most from 1993? Is it a shop? Is it a restaurant? Is it a meet and greet experience? Is it a show? Is it an attraction? What is it? I invite you to come by the show notes. Visit wdwradio.com slash 309, the number 309. Leave your comment there. Tell us what you miss most. Is it the Ninja Turtles? Is it American Journeys? Is it Lumiere's Kitchen? Whatever it may be. Ryan, if I was to ask you if you could bring back one of those things, again, Adventures Club is out of the running, what do you think that you would bring back from 1993? As much as I miss April O'Neil in her yellow jumpsuit, <laughs> uh, 
I think it would have to be, even if not the attractions, the visuals of Tomorrowland in 1993. You still had the spires. You still had the waterfalls out the front. It was that clean white lines everywhere. I don't know what about that always signaled that, yes, that is the future. That is tomorrow to me. Um, maybe because it was burned into me since I was a toddler there. But that, those visuals I would love to see back. That, that vision of the future that never was, where everything was, never stark, was white, and Aaron Gray wore you know white spandex uh, right. <laughs> Buck Rogers jumpsuits because that's the way we all dressed uh, in the future. Exactly. Interesting. Uh, very interesting. Uh, I, I sort of do miss some of the um, interactivity that you had at places like Disney's Hollywood Studios. That The idea that when you walked in there, it was a new experience every time. We see that again with things like Indiana Jones where you can participate, and we see it with, obviously, places like American Idol. But Superstar Television and Monster Sound Show, we could really sort of get your hands in and get a chance to be up on stage and be an active participant. I really like those kind of experiences, and I wonder if and when those may be coming back again. But I would love to hear from those of you who are listening what you would like to see come back if you could sort of wave your magic wand or... Maybe we'd like to see go away. Maybe not everybody wants to see the sorcerer's hat in front of the great movie ride. I opened up a can of worms, I know. that's <laughs> we're gonna get so much on that. But I also want to invite you guys to head on over to Main Street Gazette. It's MainSTGazette.com. Ryan, I say this all the time. You are not just uh, such a great prolific writer. I mean, you create so much great content that covers such a wide spectrum of Walt Disney World from the history to the details to look, I love when you photograph food as well too, whatever it may be, there's something for everybody. And you've been doing this for a long, long, when did you start the Gazette? You've been doing this for a while. In in 07. So yeah, so it's been, this is, I'm in my, I'm getting close. I'm closing in on six years. Wow. That, it is quite an accomplishment. I, I highly recommend you guys go over, uh, check out Ryan there, friend him on Facebook, follow him on Twitter hang out in his front yard whatever it may be um, and Ryan we certainly have to have you come back more Wayback Machines uh, in the future hey anytime I'll, I'll, be, I'll be right here in a couple years ago remember 2013 remember when New Fantasyland first opened remember when Sorcerers of the Magic Kingdom with <laughs> only one set of cards Time once again for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I ask you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World history, trivia. Maybe I'll play a random sound clip or quote a line from a show or an attraction, ask you to identify where in Walt Disney World you may have heard that clip. I'll then select one winner randomly from all the correct entries for a chance to win a Disney prize package. Before we get to this week's question, let's go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week I told you that I was working on finishing up my Tomorrowland audio tour, which will complete the set of Magic Kingdom virtual audio walking tours. And since I was in a Tomorrowland kind of mood, I had a Tomorrowland question for you. And the question was this. What attractions were operational on opening day in Tomorrowland on October 1st, 1971? I ask you just to list them, and believe it or not, there weren't that many to list. 
because on opening day, there were only two attractions operational in Tomorrowland, the Tomorrowland Speedway and the Skyway to Fantasyland. Remember, the Skyway was listed twice on park maps, one for the terminal in Fantasyland, one for the terminal in Tomorrowland. Other attractions didn't start opening until later on that year, like Flight to the Moon, where Stitch's Great Escape currently sits, the Star Jet, which is now Astro Orbiter, didn't open until 1974, and the People Mover and Carousel of Progress didn't come until 1975. Congratulations and thanks to all of you who entered. You were playing for all of my audio walking tours, a WDW Radio luggage tag, and a button, and a signed copy of my Walt Disney World Trivia Book, Volume 2. And a randomly selected winner from last week is... Al Kirschbaum. So Al, congratulations. Send me your address. I'll get your package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, I appreciate you playing, but don't worry because here's your next opportunity to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So sticking with the Wayback Machine theme, I want to look to Walt Disney World's past and some of the changes. So this week, I want you to just name two attractions that once occupied the space where Buzz Lightyear's Space Ranger Spin currently resides. There have been a number of attractions that have been in that space beforehand. All I need you to do is list two. You have until Sunday, January 27th at 11.59 p.m. to email your answer to contest at wdwradio.com. You'll once again be playing for all of my audio tours, a luggage tag, a button, and a mystery vinylmation. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks again for taking the time and tuning in this and every week. Don't forget that in addition to the show, you can come to the website over at www.radio.com. There you can tune in to our weekly live video broadcast and interactive chat every Wednesday night, 7.30 p.m. Eastern, over at www.radiolive.com. You can watch live, ask and answer questions, and talk with other Disney fans about this week's Walt Disney World news. If you can't catch it live, you can watch it on our YouTube channel, on the blog or get the audio in the iTunes feed. While you're on the site, be sure and check out our blog. We have daily blog posts from a number of wonderful guest contributors, contests, photos, and more. For example, just this past week, we welcomed a new writer to the blog. You can read more about her and find out some of the ways that she is helping to convert some of her non-Disney fans who are friends and family into Disney enthusiasts. You might get some good tips along the way to convert some of your friends as well. You can come along with Angie. You can read more about her vegan adventures on the WW Radio Cruise. Take a virtual trip on the Kilimanjaro Safaris and learn why the Imagineers put a drop in the Pirates of the Caribbean attractions. There's that and lots more there. There's also new videos. You can sign up for our free email newsletter that has exclusive content, contests, offers, and more. You can also find all the different ways to connect with me and the show. Twitter, I'm at Lou Mangiello. Facebook.com slash WDW Radio. You can also download the new free WDW Radio app for your iPhone, iPad, Android, or Windows device. It gives you free access to the podcast, blog, and videos. You can connect, find out more about events, chat with others in the discussion forums, and lots more. Speaking of events, don't forget about our next WDW Radio Meet of the Month in Walt Disney World. It's going to be Saturday, February 9th in Epcot as part of our sixth anniversary show. You can watch us live from 10 to 3 over at www.radiolive.com as we complete challenges that you helped select as we celebrate our 6th anniversary. And then come join us live 
at the Electric Umbrella for the Meet of the Month at 4 p.m. Be sure and stay tuned during the show and at the meet. Lots of announcements to share, including new event details and much more. I'm also going to reveal a mystery for 2013 and bring it with me. You can find out more. Visit www.radio.com slash six year, the number six and Y-E-A-R. Also visit the events page. Find out how you can join us in Aulani in Hawaii from July 15th through the 20th. And our group trip to the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, our event in New York City. And of course, join us on the Disney Fantasy from November 2nd through the 9th, 2013. Want to give quick thanks to my partners and sponsors, including Mouse Fan Travel. They are my official and recommended travel provider. It's because it's who I've used personally for years. They give you not just the best quotes, all available discounts, but the most important aspect is the incredible level of personal detail and service and attention that Becky Mankin and her team of agents give to you. You can find them over at mousefantravel.com. And remember, their services are completely free to you. When you come to Walt Disney World, All-Star Vacation Home has more than 150 homes within just a couple of miles of Walt Disney World. So if you want to bring the extended family and want your own multiple master bedrooms, pool, game rooms, kitchens, and more, you can visit them over at allstarvacationhomes.com. And if you want some Disney magic delivered to you every other month via print or on your iPad or your Kindle, Celebrations Magazine, you can subscribe, order back issues at celebrationspress.com. And as always, my friends, and you are my friends, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Tweet out that you're listening. Share links and comment over on Facebook. Tell your friends. And please come by. Rate and review the show and the app over on iTunes. Very, very helpful. Very much appreciated. And finally, and most importantly, I want you to remember that amazing things will happen when you refuse to give up and work harder than before. So get up, get psyched, get it done. You can either have results or you can have excuses, not both. I hope you guys have an amazing week this week. So until next time, thanks again. See ya. You've been-